I'm very impressed that you're here on time. That one thing alone, that just being places on time, that can change your life. Okay, how many of you have ever heard me speak before? Most of you? You know that, that usually it'll end up in some kind of gut-wrenching, let's have a good cry, um, cathartic, horrendous experience that, yeah, y'all brought <laughs> Brian as the, as the tissues over there. Okay, today's not going to be like that. All right? Today is not going to be like that. Today is going to be more like, and uh, I'm apologizing for this in advance, Today, you're all leaders. You're invited here because you're either leaders or you're, or you're um, embryonic leaders. L- leader larvae, we call them. You would be larval leaders, leaders of larvae. You just be what you are. Every worm turns into um, a butterfly or some other germ-carrying uh, moth. And they, that too. You see, so uh, you're larval leaders. And as such, this is going to be kind of more like a seminary um, class. This is not going to be so emotional. It's going to be um, kind of thoughtful. I am capable of that. (laughs) There are these moments. So uh, I apologize in advance. You may need lots of coffee to stay awake. But I want you to try to get through all of this because um, although this is foundational material, and probably you've heard a lot of it before, it's really important. It's really vital to how we do church. So uh, there's note paper provided. Is there note paper? You've got your note paper? Yes. You have pens and papers and things, and please feel free to take notes. If you have a question, you can interrupt and ask it. And if I, not that early, in a moment, you can interrupt and ask it. And uh, if it's sort of you know, seems like the timely place to deal with that question. We'll deal with it right then. And if it's something that's going to be answered or come up later in the talk, then I'll say, oh, that's going to get answered later in the talk. But feel free to to interrupt with questions. Okay? Okay. Let's pray. Lord, I know it, it sounds trite to start this way, but there's a whole lot of things that we're thankful for that we never think about. And we want to honor you with that. Thanks. First of all, I'm thankful that we're allowed to come here and gather like this in a free country where we're not persecuted for our faith. I thank you for the opportunity to, to have uh, lives that allow us to take time off, to have things like weekends and breaks. God, I thank you for the homes we live in, the beds that we sleep in, the cars that we drive, and the food that we eat, and the way you sustain us in, in a million ways. We thank you for all of this, Lord. We don't take any of this for granted. We say that we love you, Lord Jesus. We want to love you more. We want to know you more. We want to love you more, and because of that, we want to serve you more faithfully. So we ask that everything that's said here today will be of use in knowing you more, loving you more, and serving you more. Help us to stay awake. Help us to receive everything that we can receive. And Holy Spirit, you know the unique sentence, phrase, paragraph that applies to each heart in this room. 
Everybody's going to take something a little different away from today. But you know what it is. And I pray that no distraction, no discomfort, no tiredness, no worry from the weak, nothing will interfere with us receiving what it is that you have already uniquely planned for each person. So may that be done, Lord. And we, we ask for the stirring up of your Holy Spirit in me with gifts of uh, teaching and preaching, insight, and, and your Spirit stirred up in each one of us to receive. And we take authority in this place over every evil spirit that comes to hinder what's done today. We command you to go in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This place belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We welcome the Holy Spirit, and we welcome all the gifts and work of the Holy Spirit here today. Amen. Okay, Raymond asked me to speak about um, the balance between freedom and structure. Any church which begins to move in the Holy Spirit, any church that is a Spirit-filled church that welcomes the gifts of the Holy Spirit will ultimately have to face the uh, really difficult task of navigating the line between freedom and structure. I remember when that happened to our church 20-some years ago. Uh, it, it just became this... I was the pastor at the time, and it became this sort of juggling, trying to keep all these balls in the air and keep them moving, keep everything in balance. And uh, half the church was mad at me at any given time. There, there was always somebody mad at me. Just last month... Uh, Gosh, this is interesting, you guys. Just last month, my wife, Shelly, who's been here a number of times, she, she, she's wonderful, and she's, her ministry is really growing. It's neat to see. But she's counseling uh, two, two different women in the church. Both of them had been in the church for about a year. And she had invested a, just a vast amount of time, and I really mean that, like hours a day into discipling these women. Both of them came to her and said, I see something in you that I really like. You can teach me. I want you to disciple me. And she said yes to both of them. And in the same week, about two weeks ago, uh, both of them came to her and said, I'm leaving the church, which was a great blow to her because she'd invested a huge amount of her life and love and passion into these two women. Their reasons were very different. One of them came and said, this church creeps me out. I can't take it anymore. I've, I've, heard, I've heard people speaking in tongues in the church. And I just, this, this woman, a well-educated professional woman, said, I just, you know, I, I don't understand it and I don't do it and, and I just, it's just too much for me. And we're not talking about speaking in tongues with interpretation in front of the whole, the, the focus of the meeting. We're just talking about during the worship, somebody was quietly speaking in tongues under their, you know, like that. And it is too creepy. So the church was too creepy for her. For her. She had to leave. Then Shelley's other uh, friend came to her and said, this church doesn't honor prophecy enough. It's not Holy Spirit enough. I need to go somewhere that really encourages that. So in the same week, you've got somebody coming and saying, uh, this church is too weird for me. And in effect, someone else is coming and saying, this church is not weird enough for me. <laughs> You've failed me. The church has failed me. And, and uh, it causes you, literally, to tear your hair out. <laughs> Some of you either have been or could be senior pastors. <laughs> You're wearing the qualification of head non-covering, which we'll get into in a few minutes. 
<laughs> Literally, we will. It's in the passage. We have to deal with it. So, like it or not, once you, ex- once you open yourself to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you begin to move in these things, you are going to find yourself walking on the edge of a knife. And, and, there's, and there's two sides to it, and somebody's always upset about the flavor and the practice of the church. And what we're talking about really is a balance between freedom and structure. Most of the people that say this church isn't wild enough, they, they want more spontaneity. They want a greater sense of freedom. And people who say this church is too wild, they want a greater sense of order and a greater sense of structure. And uh, I'm not going to come down on either side of the argument because anyone who lands heavily on either side of that argument is wrong. It's just biblically wrong. And that's what we're going to discover and look at today. So let's start with uh, freedom. Webster defines freedom as to be free is to, quote, not be controlled by others. And freedom is the state in which you're making choices unhindered by the control of others. Spontaneity, Webster defines as, quote, done or produced freely, naturally, and without constraint. You see the common denominator. It's making choices without the constraint or the control of others. And today, the world in which we live, especially in North America, and I I made up this definition, but it works, would define freedom as unrestrained personal choice, unhindered by the control of others. Would you buy that? Freedom? Essentially making choices, unhindered by the control of others. Now, freedom, as the world understands freedom, unrestrained personal choice, goes hand-in-hand with a particular philosophy. And I want you to think about that. Maybe, maybe we can use this as a teachable moment. There's a particular philosophy which came into being about 300 years ago, which is the dominant philosophy of the Western world and particularly the dominant philosophy in America. And it goes hand-in-hand, hand-in-glove with this idea of freedom being unrestrained personal choice. Now, I say it's a philosophy because it is, but most of the people you talk to, and I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute or maybe we'll guess, but most of the people that you would talk to would not consider it a philosophy. They would say it's truth. That's just the way it is. They would look, if you said... This is a philosophy that America has currently embraced, which prior to its existence was unheard of in human affairs. It is not the way people understood the world more than 300 years ago, and it is not the way Christians are to understand the world today. This, 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 is, an, this is an ungodly philosophy which has no real basis in the Bible and yet is an absolute given in our culture today. And it's a sacred cow in our culture today. And it largely defines our culture today. Any ideas? Hmm? No? Close. Humanism. Who said humanism? Humanism began about 200 years before this philosophy. And, and this philosophy would not have been possible without humanism. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Without humanism, this philosophy could not have arisen and uh, wouldn't exist today. So, yeah, it all does go back to humanism, but there's... Uh, no? Hmm? No? 
actually the opposite of socialism. The not thinking capitalism, although it goes, hand, goes hands in hands with capitalism, but it's not an economic theory. It's a social theory. Sort of. <laughs> Yuppieism is the final most evil incarnation <laughs> of this philosophy. It is, yes, it is an ism. It is an ism. Huh? Well, the pursuit of happiness grew, absolutely grew out of this. That is its final incarnation. No, I'm not kidding you. That is its final incarnation. But there's a middle step that we all embrace and think is absolutely wonderful and it's taken as a given. But when it turns into egoism, we begin finally to say, gee, there might be something wrong with this. But that's too easy because obviously there's something wrong with egoism. But before egoism, there's another ism that we all... Hey, we, guys, let me give you a hint. Watch, watch any action-adventure movie and there it is. <laughs> okay, let's talk about... Let's talk, guys, let's talk about every action-adventure movie you've ever seen. How does it work? Individualism. Individualism is the governing, one, one of the governing philosophical assumptions of the world in which we live. Here is what the encyclopedia says about individualism. In political and economic philosophy, the doctrine promulgated by such theorists as English philosopher Thomas Hobbes and British economist Adam Smith, now listen, that society is an artificial device existing only for the sake of its members as individuals and can properly be judged only according to criteria established by them as individuals. Society is, under individualism, nothing more than an artificial device. What's being said here is that nothing about our human life together matters except in relation to how it affects the individual. What is ultimately real and valuable is the individual. And as we said a moment ago, individualism is the political cousin to humanism. Now here's what the encyclopedia says about humanism. Humanism in philosophy, attitude that emphasizes the dignity and worth of the individual. A basic premise, I'm still quoting, a basic premise of humanism, now listen, is that people are rational beings who possess within themselves the capacity for truth and goodness. All right, let me repeat that. A basic premise of humanism is that people are rational beings. Now, right there, we should throw it out. <laughs> when was the last time you interacted with anybody who was behaving rationally. Right? When, when someone behaves rationally, it's a justification for some emotional response that they had before they began to think. You understand? I mean, it's just, I've watched human nature and human behavior for far too long not to realize that when someone gives you the rational reasons for something, they arrived at an emotional conclusion or something that they selfishly or whatever wanted. They backtrack, find good reasons for it, and present to you their rational thought processes. You got it? As soon as I saw that, I thought, well, this philosophy is doomed to failure. 
which emphasizes the people are rational beings who possess within themselves the capacity for truth and goodness. Still quoting, the term humanism is most often used to describe a literary and cultural movement that spread through Western Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. This Renaissance revival of Greek and Roman studies, now listen, emphasized the value of the classics for their own sake rather than for their relevance to Christianity. Do you understand? In other words, this artistic and literary movement began that said, the study of human beings in and of themselves is a worthy intellectual exercise irrelevant to Christianity. See, before humanism, everything that man did in terms of applying his mind to study, to understand the world, was with one central purpose. It's good to understand human nature. It's good to understand uh, uh, art. It's good to understand uh, science. It's good to uh, accumulate all this knowledge, but for one reason. If we do so, we're going to understand God better. We're going to know God and his world better. But when humanism came along, it said man as the central object of study is worthy in and of himself. And it has nothing to do with God. You see? From that point on, human intellectual thought and, and discovery in science said God is not part of the equation. We'll just do it on our own for ourselves with us as the center of things. And it just began to veer off. And that was a great split. That's where church and state actually started getting split, you see. You can have your religious thoughts, you can have your religious experience, you can have your, your, your faith world, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the real world in which man is the center. And he's a worthy object of study all in, in and of himself. Well, when humanism developed with that mindset, for individualism to pop up 200 years later, 150 years later, and say, well, you know, society, the group, the tribe, the town, the neighborhood, the family, the church, it's an artificial construct. It's only there for the sake of the individual. You see what begins to happen? What seed have you just sown? Pure selfishness. I am the center of the universe. That's egotism, egoism. Prior to humanism, knowledge was valued as a means to pursue God. God and faith were at the center of human life. The significance of the individual was his ability to share the life of God. You see? The significance before individualism, before humanism, it's not that people weren't valued. But their value, their understanding of themselves as having value was that they were capable of having a relationship with God. That's what makes you valuable. Not in and of yourself, because you're capable. You're actually capable. Here is a being capable of having a face-to-face -face relationship with the creator of the universe. That makes you special. And your DNA makes your relationship with God unique. But you're not the center of the universe. He is. Your significance is in your ability to relate to Him. And guess what? The church is still saying that. 
The individual became significant by being the object of the Creator's love. That's what makes you significant. And humanism moved the center of significance away from God and and to man. People are rational beings who possess within themselves the capability for truth and goodness. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is what the Bible says. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Jeremiah 17, 9. Humanism starts as an apparently innocent step of making the study of human achievement a legitimate field of study, but becomes the intellectual justification for a move away from God. Now, this philosophy of humanism has become the paradigm by which modern humanity understands itself. Do you see why we live in a godless age? We chopped him out 300 years ago. Humanism paved the way for individualism, which is nothing more than humanism applied to economics and political theory. What became a movement pertaining to art and literature comes to dominate our entire culture. By the way, this is how culture changes. Just let me throw this in. I think you all know this. You've thought about this at all. How does culture change? Popular culture, how does it change? Yeah, music, entertainment, through the arts. The arts is the cutting edge of cultural change. Every one of these isms, well, whatever. Anything the culture worships, what those people say becomes the dominant. You see, individualism and humanism started as a, as a theory talked about by intellectuals in some college, some university someplace. And it, it was, it was a, an idea circulated around, around dinner tables of intellectuals. And if it had stayed there, it would have been harmless. But Satan has an agenda. It's not that these ideas stay in places that, that won't get disseminated. The idea gets picked up by an artist, gets picked up by an artistic movement, gets picked up by musicians and writers. It then becomes a dominant theme in their writing, in their music. This goes into the popular culture, and very soon this philosophy, which, by the way, has got nothing to do with truth. The dominant, the dominant um, philosophies throughout human history have had nothing to do with truth. They're about fashion. Ideas change just like clothes change. It just takes longer. You know, we can do the hemline in, in, a, in a fashion season, but to bring in a whole new dominant philosophy takes about 100 years to work its way into the popular culture. But get this. Once it's worked its way into the popular culture, nobody in the popular culture thinks enough, is rational, to sit down and say, is there any truth to this? Or, or is, it a, is it a fashion statement? And the fact is, it is a fashion statement, and we take it as the, it's the, how many of you are wearing contacts today? Glasses, glasses and contacts, raise your hands. How many times in the last half an hour have you thought, I'm wearing contacts or glasses, they are altering my perception of reality? (laughs) You're not going to, right? You don't think about your glasses, but they alter your perception of reality. You don't think about the governing philosophy of the age, but it's altering your perceptions of reality. Are you with me? Okay? Isms. All right. Today, individualism is taken as a given. It's not seen as a theory that we happen to have stumbled upon 300 years ago. It's seen as an accurate description of the way the world is and should be. 
Intellectually, it is the air that we breathe. It goes unnoticed every second, but it's there every second, like a pair of glasses. Now, isn't it interesting, folks, that this humanism slash individualism is only 300 years old? Really? This whole way of understanding reality is only 300 years old. Here's my question that came into my head. What, it, what organizing theory did they have before that? How did they think the individual fit into the world before humanism and individualism? What was the central organizing principle of, of human life? Where did you find your significance in the world when you weren't the center of the world? And here's the sad question. How did the church ever survive 2,000 years without individualism? How did the early church get by as a society of unique persons without the focus of all social organization being on the individual? Well, this is a rhetorical question. Everybody knows how the church fared without individualism. Through the self-sacrificing love of its members, the entire world was changed. See, before individualism, people saw their significance as part of a nuclear family or they saw their significance as part of a small town or a community or a social organization, but mostly they saw their significance as part of the church. They saw the church as the organizing principle of their lives. Their membership in the church defined them as people, defined their social network their fabric and their structure of understanding their world was the church. And guess what? It's supposed to be. That's, that was the truth. That was the right way of understanding yourself in the world. It was as a part of something called the church. The Bible, now this is what's interesting. See, humanists today want to criticize our faith because they think our faith doesn't value the individual enough. Because we're a tribal people, Christians. We're a communal people. We see ourselves as part of a community. We, we are very tribal. You know why Christianity, Christianity does so doggone well in Africa? Well, they never embraced individualism. They're a tribal. They see their significance as part of the group. So when the chief says, huh, Makes perfect sense to me. Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind. The tribe goes, makes perfect sense to us. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And bang. And we think, what a shallow conversion. No, I don't think we understand what it is to be socially connected. That's not a shallow conversion. It makes perfect sense to those people because they understand community. They understand to be part of a tribe. You with me? The Bible places great importance on the individual for this reason. Because each person is unique. Each one of them is worth Christ's death. But see, there's a further consequence to this truth, and it's this. Because each person has unique worth, each and every other person is worth sacrificing my welfare for. See, that's the corollary. Individualism says, the individual is the center of the world. Adore me. I'm so unique. But if that's true, every other person in the room is equally unique and has equal worth. 
And Christianity says, because that's true, start loving them with a sacrificial love. Consider others better than yourselves. Hello? You see? Because everybody has this great worth, start acting like it. Consider other people better than yourselves. See, you can be an individual and still be a self-sacrificing person. You can be an individual and still love others as if they're really valuable. Because God says, the Bible says, they're really valuable. You don't lose the value of the individual when you embrace Christianity and become part of this wonderful organism, this amazing spiritual thing called the church. You find your significance in it because there you're free to love. You're free to give somebody else the benefit of their individuality and their beauty. It is exciting. It's what the whole thing's about. But to say this, to be blunt, the Bible does not support individualism in the form it is presently being practiced in our society. It doesn't. In the way individualism expressed in our society, it's all selfish. Me, 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 me. And the Bible says, yes, I love you and I want you to love others. The North American church is a worldly church, not chiefly because it engages in worldly activities, but because it thinks in a worldly fashion. You are what you think. This is what runs the world today. There's one little sentence, one sentence with a question mark at the end, which is the way the world works. It is the governing principle of the world. What's in it for me? You want to know what makes the world work? What's in it for me? And second question, what have you done for me lately? They go together. All right? Now that, boil down the, what Paul calls the systems of this world, reduce the systems of this world, the philosophies of this world in this age, all down to, if you had to say, what makes the world tick in one sentence? It's simple. What's in it for me? All right? Now, any time the church, us, begins to think that way, we are worldly. Not because we drink and smoke and chew and go, go with girls that do. That was the governing principle in the church. No smoking, drinking, or chew or go with the girls that do. If you could just take care of those, if you could just keep, take care of dancing and movies and alcohol, you were going to be a stellar Christian. What a, what a stupid, shallow understanding of the world. You know, you can look like an absolutely stellar Christian and be as selfish inside and as self-centered as Satan and come out smelling like a rose if you just stay away from the pet few sins. And by the way, in every church, the pet few sins are different. That's how to know it's all bogus. Because, you know, like, these are the pet sins here, but they're very different than the pet sins here. And, well, Gee whiz. Oh, gosh. I grew up in this church. It's like a real legalistic church. And uh, this happened before I was born. But there was this old man, this true story, in the church that I grew up in. And he'd been there for decades. He was about, is it? He was like 80-some years old. Never said a word. Never criticized anything. Never caused a ripple. Just your basic good Christian guy. And the preacher's preaching another hellfire sermon and this guy stands up in the middle of the sermon and he says, excuse me, excuse me, I got a question. And no one's ever heard this guy. I mean, it's like he's Mr. Wonderful. 
And he interrupts the pastor. This is a true story. And he interrupts the pastor, and the pastor says, you know, because this is a valued guy, right? He's, he's aged. He's been around. He's tithed forever. <laughs> and right there, credibility, you know, certified grade A beef. He's tithed, tithed forever. He gets to ask one question in church. So he says, he gets up there, and he stands up, and he says, I've been in this church since, you know, it was decades before. He says, I've been listening to sermons in this church for decades. And he says, uh, all I've ever heard is what not to do. He says, before I die, could I hear a sermon on what to do? (laughs) And then he said, the way I understand our faith from what you've been preaching, dead people would be the most successful Christians because they're not making any mistakes. But tell me something to do. You see? What did that have to do with anything I just said? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. See, what makes us worldly is not, is not what we're doing. What we're doing is nothing but a product of what we're thinking. How we think is what makes us worldly. And the world's basic governing principle is what's in it for me. And the minute the church begins to embrace that, what's in it for me, no matter how you appear, you're worldly. And we have whole governing philosophies of church growth now that appeal to that one simple principle. You know, come to our church and we will take care of your children. Come to our church and we will entertain you. As if the purpose of the church was entertainment. I thought the purpose of the church was discipleship. That when we're all done in the next 10 years, some of you people will slightly resemble Jesus more than when you came in. And you know what? That's not going to happen when you're being entertained. Because entertainment is all about you. And discipleship's all about Him. Okay? So when we buy into that, we're buying into individualism. We're buying into the philosophy of this age. But that's not Christianity. Taken too far, individualism mutates into egoism. According to the definition in the encyclopedia, egoism is, quote, the belief that self-interest is the just and proper motive for all human conduct. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here. I'm going to get in some real trouble, but as a Canadian, I can do this. You have built into your constitution a sentence that I kind of question, the pursuit of happiness. No, I'm sorry, guys, but first, I mean, I'm fine for with happiness. God knows I want as much of it as I can get. But how do you get it, and what is it, and is it a goal in itself, or is it a byproduct of something else? See, Because if it's a byproduct of something else, pursuing it is foolishness. But if it's a byproduct of something else, tell me what the something else is. Let me pursue that and I'll get happiness like the gravy on the potatoes. I stopped at the buffet, looked at the potatoes and thought, what a great idea. Oh, I'll put some gravy on the potatoes. I didn't look at the gravy and say, my God, I want a bowl of gravy. I'll throw a few potatoes in there just to change the color. You with me? You see, it's not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about the pursuit of God. Happiness is a natural byproduct of that. But when you institutionalize a goal like that, you begin to move off center. You're going to get into trouble. 
egotism, egoism, the belief that self-interest is the just and proper motive for all human conduct. Now, it's hard to find a Christian who will try to justify egoism, but it's equally hard to find one who will criticize individualism because we have so accepted this as part of the culture that we live in. Individualism sees society as an artificial construct. You see, look, if society is an artificial construct, then certain things follow. Then I don't have to respect it. You understand? If, if society is just an artificial construct here to serve the individual, then when I don't like the income tax laws, I just won't pay it. Well, we had people in our church in Canada. One of the young believers ended up living with another guy in the church. And in the course of living with the other guy in the church, he discovered he hadn't paid income taxes for 15 or 20 years. And so he came to, he first he said, man, this isn't right. The Bible says you're supposed to respect civil authorities. You're supposed to pay your taxes. And the guy made some excuse about I'm under God, not under Caesar or whatever, and I don't have to do this. And Well, it got brought to the elders. See, when, the trouble is, when you got a young Christian who hasn't learned to weave his way around the truth, you see, he hasn't picked up the cheap rationalizations and the tricks we use to avoid the Bible. He doesn't know that stuff yet, and it's hard to just bold-faced teach him, oh, let me show you how you can get around that. So he comes to you and he says, so-and-so's not doing this, and I read here in the book it says we're supposed to pay our taxes and we're supposed to obey the government, he says. And I'm thinking, God, how am I going to get out of this? But see, he's this young Christian. I can't ruin him yet. I have to let others do that. So I have to tell him the truth, and I have to say, you know what, you're right. That's what the Bible says, doggone it. He says, well, what are you going to do about the gyms not paying his taxes? So I'm, Lord, what am I going to do? So like a fool, I read Matthew 18. Don't ever read those passages because they're relevant. <laughs> go find something in the Old Testament. My God, don't go to Matthew 18 because that's all about church discipline and correction. And if you start reading that, you've got to do it. It's going to ruin everything. I read it and, and with, with greater growing degrees of horror. Oh, Lord, he did the first part. He went one-on-one. Oh, God. And then he took his friend so-and-so and the guy didn't listen. Oh, gee, tell it to the church. He's come to us. What am I going to do? So we took it to the elders. What are we going to do? That's, that's when it's good to have elders. Boys, what are we going to do with this? Well, we had to call a guy in and we had to say, look, why aren't you paying your taxes? He went, I don't know. But this is wrong, man. This is, this is against the word of God. So we got him an accountant and we got him help, and we sent somebody over to work through all the books. He never did any of it. Didn't cooperate at all. Zero, nothing. We excommunicated him. We kicked him out of the church. We'd never excommunicated anybody before in our fellowship, and it was over this issue. It took a year, more than a year, to, to get, go through this church discipline because we tried everything to help him get on track in his business. But he just flat out wouldn't do it. 
we finally said, well, man, your attitude is completely rebellious. Let me tell you, we weren't an authoritarian kind of church. I made the mistakes I made were were all in allowing too much liberty in our church, not too much authority. And finally, because the word of God had me by the throat, we had to do something. And he finally got written out of fellowship over this. See, once society is nothing but an artificial construct to serve the individual, then the individual is free to ignore it most of the time. Now, here's what's scary. Maybe we can get away with that about government. What happens when other social organizations become artificial devices? What happens when the family becomes an artificial device that's just there to serve the individual? What happens when the church is an artificial device? that's just there to serve the individual. Here's what, here's what Paul says about the body of Christ, guys. Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church... This is real important. Hello? He didn't say, so that through the individual. He didn't say, so that singularly, individually, and without reference to others, you will be the expression of God's will for this planet. As people observe you alone, they will be so awestruck with your holiness that they will fall down and say, surely God is within him. I've been waiting for that to happen. I really want somebody to say, you're so holy, it just makes me believe in God. Mostly they say, you scare me. I'm serious, you know. I mean, I've been waiting for someone to say, just observing your holiness has really been my proof text for the existence of a higher order. It's not going to happen. And here's why it's not going to happen, because it wasn't designed that way. Paul says, through the church, the church, us gathered in relationship, living life together, the wisdom of God in its rich variety, isn't that a wonderful affirmation of the individual within the local body? In its wonderful variety, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We are the object lesson to all of the heavenly hosts that both rebelled and those who have not rebelled. We are the laboratory in which the truths of God for the entire universe are displayed against and over against the philosophies of a fallen human nature and an enemy. We are the thing gathered together, how we relate together in this thing called the church. We are the proof text, the laboratory in which the truths of God are made evident. God. Doesn't, doesn't that make what we do kind of important? I mean, how we live life together, isn't that just a hair significant? Doesn't that add new meaning to this building? To what we do when we gather here? To how we treat one another? To how we live life together? Doesn't it? If you haven't got this, you're not going to get anything. 
We are significant. We together have eternal significance. Not me alone. Me alone is a joke. Me mixed up with you, working the Bible through together, has eternal, everlasting significance. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now, this minute, now, this is the time, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This verse alone, without looking at the rest of the Bible, which is rich, is a stinging rebuke to individualism. Ephesians 3.10 So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The made obvious wisdom of God, manifold, the made evident, made real in front of you. The Bible values, now listen, the Bible values the individual, but at the same time it teaches that each individual cannot find his or her significance apart from a relationship of interdependence, dependence upon God and relationships of interdependence with others. The Christian self finds its greatest fulfillment in the life of service to others. God's not denying yourself. Yourself is unique. Yourself has tremendous value, but yourself will never be realized until it finds itself in service to others. It's the great paradox of Christianity. When you deny yourself, you find yourself. When you worship yourself, you lose yourself. And you find yourself in community with others. That's the manifold wisdom of the church. Here's what I put in my notes. Before leaving the subject, I cannot resist taking one more shot at this sacred cow. So for fun, one more shot at individualism. Here are two passages from comparison, one from the encyclopedia, the other from the Bible. Like individualism, socialist or collectivist theories may place high value on the well-being and free initiative of the individual. Individualism differs from such theories in asserting that the welfare of the individual is of the highest value and that each individual exists as a unique end with society serving only as a means to accomplish the ends of the individual. That was from the encyclopedia. Here's from the Bible. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. These things are bumping heads. How thoroughly has individualism infected the church Let's take the foregoing quote about the relationship between the individual and society and substitute the word church just to see how it reads. Okay? The quote would read this. The welfare of the individual is of the highest value and each individual exists as a unique end with the church serving only as a means to accomplish the ends of the individual. Folks, that's the definition of the church in a lot of America today. That's, it's all about me. 
What's in it for me? If you take care of my kids and promise me that they'll graduate from high school with their, without getting pregnant and without becoming a drug addict, I'll tithe. If there's good social programs and the sermons aren't too long and if the band's snappy, makes me tap my feet. If you've got good multimedia presentations and I don't possibly get bored. If you have the right social demographic that fits my socioeconomic educational background, I might consider coming to your church. And I might consider giving once in a while because actually that's a fee for services. And that's only fair. I'm a little cynical, but folks, I'm from Southern California where we have perfected selfishness. <laughs> You know, when people ask me, where do you live and what do you do? I say, I'm from Southern California and I work in the nursery. They say, what do you mean? I say, well, I'm a pastor and I'm from Southern California. I work in the nursery. In the kingdom of God, I work in the nursery. I don't like it, but the weather's great. And after all, it really is all about me. Jim. Fear? Is that those of us who are infected with this sin individualism and at the same time find ourselves infected and attached with this sinful sin should take everything that Jesus told me and wrap our arms around it spiritually while keeping it distant from our individual need to access this wonderful. Yeah, we can embrace all of it. What I'm saying is the truth, and it'll never change our behavior. In fact, that's another problem. Individualism has gone along with, with another thing in the West, in, in our culture, which is intellectualism. We think that if we know something, we're doing it. We assume that once I under... Oh, gee, now I understand the error of individualism, and I see what the church really is. Ah, back to sleep. You know, once I understand it, it's the same as doing it. In the Bible, knowing something and living something are two different things. Knowing something means... You know, you, know, you know what the Bible says about knowing something? Beware you who are teachers, because now you know more. Guess what? You're accountable for more. The proof is not what you know or even what you talk about. It's what you do. That's the danger of something like this. You become illumined. You say, whoa, that's really true. You know, the old the shoe dropping. Wow, that's really true. Folks, now you're in trouble. Now you're in a lot of trouble because the accountability just went up. My God, now I have to undertake to live this. And this is not easy to live. Changing your orientation from self-centeredness and individualism to seeing the church that you're a part of as probably the most important thing in your life? Really, I'm not kidding. I really do view the church that I'm a part of as the paradigm for my life. It's not what I do out on the road. That's not what defines me. What defines me are my relationships in my church. Someone said, why don't you travel more? Why, why do you limit what you're doing to two weekends a month? For this simple reason, if I'm not living it at home, I have no right to talk about it on the road. 
if this isn't costing me with my own relationships in my church, if I'm not working it out in that crucible, I have no right to talk about it and shouldn't. I mean it. Truth is not to be fooled around with in a cavalier manner. It isn't a weapon you use to win an argument. It isn't a defense to hide behind. It's something you strive to live. It grips your life. And you make your life accountable to it. See, I have to live these things. Come hell or high water, I have to live these things. In Southern California, in the nursery, good intentions is what matters. I am, oh God, I'm so sick of this. I preach a good sermon. It has an application at the end. Maybe this month we're dealing with the poor. This fall we're dealing with the poor. So my wife, who has a genuine passion for the poor, I don't, okay? Let's just get this out, get it honest. I don't have a passion for the poor. She has a passion for the poor. And it humbles me. So I preach a hot sermon on how much God loves the poor, and there's all these opportunities to sign up for the food outreach and this and that because she's organized all these things in the community. User-friendly, easy ways to start. I mean, once a month, show up at a food giveaway for two hours? That's not going to kill anybody, is it? So everyone rushes to the table and makes the commitment. Then two weeks later, when it's time to show up and do it, out of 30 people, one person shows up. If you're going to put your name on a piece of paper to do something, you better show up and do it. You are not screwing around with the church. You're screwing around with God. He takes your commitments seriously. He writes them down in a book. And when you say, you know, I just don't feel like it. Who gives a rat's butt about your feelings? Since when were your feelings supposed to govern what you did or didn't do? You made a commitment. Sorry, but I'm passionate about this. I get to yell at you because I don't get to yell at them. Because in the nursery, yelling just makes them cry. Really, it won't do any good anyway. You'll move them by the inch, little Christian. Could you have a selfless moment, just for a moment? That's good. Yes. Well, that's a good question, Terry. Let me think about that for a minute. First of all, where, the, where is the balance is, 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 the, is the right question to ask. And we're, we, we're going to get to that. Okay. that in okay. fact, okay. this, you know what? This is the intro. Okay. Here we are in the problem. Okay. Now let's figure out how to do But But let me say this about balance. 
Raymond taught a sermon a while ago about sailing. Did you all catch that? When you're sailing into the wind, I'm a sailor. When you're sailing into the wind, you're not sailing into the wind. You can't go into the wind. You have to go closest is little less than 45 degrees. Is about the best you can do. So if you're going up a channel and you're going into the wind and the channel is fairly narrow, and this used to happen to me all the time where we sailed, uh, you're always stuck going into the wheel, wind in some nasty, narrow little channel, and it's like a zigzag sewing machine. Tack, 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 tack. It can take you hours to go three miles up a channel because it's narrow, and you're just going, you feel like, and with the current, hello, if you're bucking a current, which, by the way, we all are in our culture, then, you know, okay, that's the point I'm going to, and I went there, and then I went there, and then... That's the same point I was going to two tacks ago. So balance is a matter of flopping back and forth between goals. All right? You've got a left-hand goal and a right-hand goal, and you're going to have to go back and forth in a zigzag pattern to make any forward progress. And right now, in the church in North America, the pendulum has swung way over to one side and swung over towards the side of individualism. But one of the reasons why it swung so far over to the side of individualism is because of abusive leaders on the other side of the equation that told you all these things, but they didn't love you when they said it, and they didn't help you find your place of significance in it. They didn't lay down their lives for you sacrificially to help you get there. They didn't make you finding your place within the church a central goal. They just built their thing, and you happened to be bricks in it. And so you said... To heck with that. I'm not going to put up with that. And individualism sounded really good at that point. And at that point it was. Do you understand? At that point it was. But go back in the other direction too far and you're making a whole nother set of mistakes. And as I analyze the church in North America, I think we need to correct individualism. That's why I'm railing about it. And then as this pendulum goes, if we change tax, the boat goes the other way, the pendulum goes the other way, we're going to have to decide, okay, far enough, it's time to tack again. Do you understand? Uh, leading a church is like sailing a boat. And the skipper's got to decide. Let me tell you how it works. It's called a tacking drill. There's two winches, one on each side of the boat. They pull the ropes in that changes the position of the foresail. And the mainsail you do another way. So you're cruising along on a tack, and the skipper, see there's a gift of leadership in the church? Your captain, there is a leader in the church, and he decides when the tack takes place. You don't vote. You don't vote. When I'm piloting our boat, and my family, my, bro my sister, my brother-in-law, my friends, they're the crew. When I'm skippering, I decide when the boat tacks. Are you with me? And we're, we're cruising along, and I see we're starting to get close to land. There's rocks up there. We've got to tack soon. But I want to get the maximum I can out of this direction before we tack, because that will determine how far forward ultimately we move. Do you understand? So I want to get as close to the rocks as I can, before I may, but not so close that you're in the lee of the island and you lose the wind. Then you're in big trouble. See, when you tax, really an important decision in sailing. So you're cruising along, and you say, ready about. 
And that tells the crew, we're going to make a change in directions now. So the guy on the uh, windward side, the guy on the windward side, he makes ready the winch to haul that foresail across. So he gets all his lines, they're called sheets, he gets them all wrapped and ready on the winch, and he's got his hands like this and his foot up there, and he's going to start taking this sheet in as fast as he can when the boat comes across. And the guy on the other side, he unwraps the winch, but not take, doesn't take it off. He just gets it all ready to let it go because he's got to get the line running free so that when he lets it go, it can just shoot out there, and that sail will just whip across. So Skipper says, ready about. And he doesn't do anything till he hears two readies, one from this side and one from this side. And they say, ready and ready. When he's got two readies, you're ready to tack. And then he says, helms a lee. And he, in ours, it's a wheel. Spins the wheel hard over. The boat starts to move like this. And just as it comes through the eye of the wind, just as it's coming through the eye of the wind, this guy over here releases the sheet, boom, lets it go. And this guy starts hauling in as fast as he can. And the boat swings across like this. And if it's done perfectly, this guy's already in tight. This guy's let it all out. The mainsail just comes across usually by itself. Bang, you're on a new tack, and you're moving, and you haven't lost any speed. Okay? It's a tacking drill. And it happens, and how good you are in a race determines how well you can do those maneuvers together as a team. As a team. Okay? Under the guidance of the skipper. Now, what's interesting in our boat is it's a little bit democratic in that I get to skipper it one day, and my brother-in-law skippers it the next day. And the next day, I'm on a witch, winch obeying him. And I'm watching how close he gets to the rocks. And I'm thinking, I would attack. I would attack. <laughs> Praise the Lord, Len. You're doing a great job. I would attack. When are you going to attack? <laughs> uh, Len, um, have you noticed uh, the rocks rising up out of the water with kill you, kill you, kill you? Have you noticed these? Yeah. Uh, shouldn't we, uh, just a suggestion, perhaps we could attack now. No. Well, at that point, I shut up. I just have to say, okay, if you wreck the boat, you wreck the boat, but you're the skipper. I'm serious about this. Yeah. You can't get into a fight arguing about when you should tack. That'll distract him from the issue of when to tack. So you just wait. And sometimes he's right and sometimes he's wrong. He's hit some rocks. He has, and so have I. So have I. We've all made our mistakes. And, and when you're skippering and you hit the rocks, everybody just looks at you. <laughs> Told you so. Told you so. People can radiate thoughts. You don't have to say things. You just have to look a certain way. And it's, Told you so. Told you so. Told you so. We all get our turn. Told you so. But there's a skipper, you know, and like it or not, he's the skipper. And he's going to make mistakes. And he decides when to tack. Well, we're going to talk about actual balance in practice. Let me, let me get a little bit further. Let me just do this next section, and then we're going to take a break, okay? I want you to see something. This whole idea of uh, connectedness to a body, finding yourself, your significance is part of a community. That's what the Bible says. It's not individualism. It's significance as part of a community. I want you to look, this is a little bit academic, but this is the derivation, the etymology of the word freedom. This is how freedom came into the English language. You're just going to find this fascinating. Listen to this. The etym this is a quote from a professor of philosophy. 
The etymology of the term freedom, at least when it is traced back to its German origins, shows that it is associated with the family. Isn't that interesting? This insight is seldom remembered in philosophical and socio-political discussions of freedom, though it remains in artistic depictions of freedom, where freedom is almost always personified as a woman with the virtues of a mother who cares for the young and defenseless. This is the root where our concept of freedom came from. The primary etymological sense of the term free is dear beloved. A free person is dearly beloved. It comes from the old high German fry, which stems from the Indo-European root prios, dear or beloved. It is related to the Sanskrit prijas, dear, and priya, wife or daughter. Likewise, there is a connection with the old English frigu, love, and freon, friend. The German and Celtic meaning, quote, not in bondage or subject to control from outside, comes from calling dear, free, those members of a household connected by ties of kindred with the head. A free person is a friend or beloved, one joined to another in mutual benevolence and intimacy. The root is also related to the old Norse goddess Frigg, the corollary to Venus in Norse mythology. She is the wife of Odin. In English, the sixth day of the week, Friday, is named after her. Like Venus, she mythologically represents love and unconstrained devotion. In Danish, free means to propose, to make an offer of marriage. <laughs> Look what our culture has done. When you get married, you lose your... The derivation of the word is, when you get married, you find you're free. Your beloved one, the one that you are joined together in intimacy in a relationship of codependence and service. This Danish phrase for betrothal captures both the sense of free choice and the sense of harmonious love. So the root meaning of freedom includes the concept of love and devotion to a beloved. As a beloved, one chooses to be devoted. And in the devotion, one is free. The choice to be devoted to the beloved is made in freedom. That is, it is a free choice. The devotion to the beloved is itself freedom. That is, the freedom of right relationship. Now listen, he ends his quote. In a family, the relation between freedom and bondage has a lived texture, unlike that of any other social institution. On the one hand, we feel most comfortable to be ourselves in the family. We take off our shoes, eat off of our everyday dishes. We feel like ourselves. In this sense, the family often feels like a haven, a garden in which we can take refuge from the stresses of public life outside of the home. In the family, we find comfort during times of physical ailment and solace during times of mental and emotional duress. The freedom of the family is a freedom founded in love, and experienced as a warm bond of togetherness. Well, let's read that as the church. In the church, the relationship between freedom and bondage has a lived texture, unlike that of any other social institution. 
On the one hand, we feel most comfortable to be ourselves in the church. We can take off our shoes and eat off our everyday dishes. We can feel like ourselves. In this sense, the church often feels like a haven, a garden in which we can take refuge from the stresses of public life outside of the church. In the church, we find comfort during times of physical ailment and solace during times of mental and emotional duress. The freedom of the church is a freedom founded in love and experienced as a warm bond of togetherness. (laughs) Even our English language understands or understood freedom as being interdependent relationships of love in service. Isn't that interesting? Now, how have we perverted the understanding and concept of freedom? The biblical definition of freedom is parallel to this. This is me speaking. The biblical definition of freedom is parallel to this understanding of the concept of freedom. For the Christian, freedom is not making unconstrained choices, but rather being free from making unconstrained bad choices. It is the freedom that comes from being a part of God's secure, nurturing family with a father to obey who knows best. It is first a freedom from selfishness and self-centeredness. This is the basis of belonging in the family of God, the church. If we do that, the manifest wisdom of God will be made evident to everybody. People will find true freedom for what freedom truly is. Okay? Let's take a five-minute break and stand up and shake our heads and have a drink and get ready for the structure part.